When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. First and foremost, thank you to all of you that came to the book launch the other night with Alistair Campbell. It was so much fun. Um, it was one of the highlights of my lockdown. It was brilliant. It was really funny. Um, and it just meant so much that so many of you were there. So thank you if you came to that. And thank you if you bought the book, Politically Homeless, which I may have mentioned on previous episodes. Um, but it's out now. It's out there. Um, so many of you have tweeted me lovely comments and pictures of you reading it and stuff and it's just a really cool thing um uh so yes uh, if you haven't bought it already i've put a link in the blurb and it's about me going into politics some funny behind the scenes stories of working in it and a, a comedic analysis of uh, how we got where we are from someone who was really into the labor party and then was kind of less into the labor party um today's episode I, I, really, they couldn't have timed it better around the launch of the book to talk to Gisela Stewart, who has had a similar, although very distinct, uh, journey, um, a, a kind of away from the Labour Party. Uh, and of course, she said the Labour Party at a far higher level than I ever did, being an MP, winning a, a seat that everyone thought was unwinnable, holding it for 20 years. And what is brilliant about this is the is the insight into the real nuts and bolts behind the scenes and just the logic of the task and breaking it down and what was required and how it could have been different. So this is and also just a fantastic insight into a type of... Your scepticism isn't quite the right word, I don't think, because Giesler's, uh position on the European Union was, was one of kind of practicality. So it... It doesn't strike me as a kind of emotional position that she reached. One, it was very sort of cool-headed, um, and for the reasons that she lays out. Um, but it, obviously, it's just a, a fascinating story of a Labour MP um, who then ends up campaigning to leave in a referendum alongside Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. But there's so much more to this than that, you know. And it, whenever you prepare for an interview, or whatever I do, you think, oh, well, these might be the big things. But actually, 
it's just the it's just Gisela's general approach to politics and her assessment of what politics is and how it works and her own assessment of herself, which is really blunt and honest, makes this one. And I know I say this every week, but it really is one of the most enjoyable interviews I've ever done. It was like a great meal. I was like, oh man, there was just so much more. We, you know. I didn't really talk to her enough about the UK and she mentioned this earlier in the interview that obviously she wanted to leave the EU but she wants to keep the UK together and I think that's a really interesting perspective that we didn't get time to talk about but no fear, you know, there's no point me rabbiting on about the stuff we didn't talk about because the stuff we did talk about is... Geezer is such a clear communicator and such a clear thinker and she knows her own mind so well and she can communicate that so brilliantly... I'm still buzzing from it. This is just... I'm convinced you're going to love it as much as I did. So um, I shall just stop rabbiting on and let you enjoy the actual interview. Um, I began by asking Geisler, because I didn't know until now, whether to pronounce her name Geisler or Geisler. And here's her answer. Ian Riley had on the, the board, when I first became an, an, a, a candidate, he had on the board the word geese seller. And I looked at this at first, and you realised, no, this was Riley's way of telling people how to pronounce my name. So, so I always say, just think of geese, and you get it right, it's, it's Gisela. <laughs> Ian Riley, uh, for those of uh, the audience who, who aren't familiar with specific members of staff from the West Midlands, regional office at Terry Duffy House, as it was then, was uh, a particularly talented um, regional director, one of the most senior staff in the Labour Party, certainly someone I learned a lot from. I mean, he was someone who really understood how the nuts and bolts of politics really work. Yeah, and what uh, what, what people underestimate is that uh, there's a difference between a political party and a movement. Uh, and a movement can be as, as self-indulgent as it likes to be, can be as undisciplined as it wants to be. But if you're a political party, uh, the whole purpose of why you exist and why you're not just a movement is that at some stage you do want to be in power to do the things which you think are important to help the people you care about. And that requires a real structure on the ground. And that's the bit which I think the public never see. And in the West Midlands, we had uh, three regional directors uh, who have I seen, and the last one was, was Ian Riley, who were just absolute class acts, who knew how to keep a very broad church together, made sure they worked in the same direction, made sure mistakes weren't made, you know, and, uh, and they've gone, you know, and they must be crying when they look back to what's happened to the Labour Party. Well, I think a lot of uh, ex, maybe even current staff do. Um, your, the first major office you stood for was the, the European Parliament in, in 1994. Back under the old system of European elections, you stood for Worcester and South Warwickshire. That was around about the time there was a lot of talk of Worcester Woman before Mondeo Man. Um, did you feel you had a lot in common with Worcester Woman in 1994? Well, I think this is now the, the, the time for a big confession. Uh, when I look at my political career, I kind of feel a bit like Forrest Gump, you know. <laughs> uh, and nothing was ever planned. Uh, and on a rare occasion when I did plan something, uh, it worked out in a completely different way and in hindsight better than I'd ever thought. So 
in the 1980s, I was politically homeless. You know, I, I, I come from Germany. Uh, I'm, I'm at, at heart a, a, a social democrat. The Labour Party under Michael Foote, however uh, principled a man he was, just wasn't something I felt at home in. And if I had known that as a foreigner, I could have joined a political party, I would have joined the, the gang of four, the David Owen and, 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 and that lot. But then, you know, I didn't and I had children and other things happened. Uh, and then, of course, when it started with John Smith, uh, and then uh, Tony Blair, that I thought, yes, I, I, I want to get involved. I was becoming, I, I suddenly realized that whilst I was training as a lawyer, if you really want to change things, you've got to write the law, not, not, not implement it. But I really thought, first past the post, I'm never going to vote for a German. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And then the European elections came. And I had rather frivolously sort of mentioned to my, my local Labour Party, which was West Worcestershire, uh, that I said I, I'd actually be quite interested to, to be a European candidate. And uh, because I still then had a German passport, I applied to become a candidate. And the NEC decided not to allow me to do that on the basis that they said uh, for foreigner to, for EU national to stand at the election, required the ratification of Maastricht. Remember Maastricht? Of course. They didn't want to end up with Maastricht not being ratified and they were going to European election, not have a candidate. So very sensible. So I forgot about all this. The, the bill was passed to give uh, the UK four extra European seats. Uh, the candidate who had stood the previous election turns up at the selection meeting and withdraws. <gasps> Suddenly I get this phone call from my local party saying, uh, you know, you once mentioned you wanted to do it. Are you still up for it? So emergency procedures kick in and uh, Gisela Schreider, as I then was, is the European election candidate. And polling day was three days after VE day. Uh, the Tories had uh, issued a press release uh, inviting the, the... They said... We hope the German will enjoy her brief sojourn to the Midlands uh, because they thought I'd just been parachuted in. So I lost by half a percent. And I thought that was really bad. With hindsight, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> because you wouldn't have ended up probably in Westminster in 1997. No, not at all. Uh, and, and again, uh, the Labour Party then... In, no, by losing by half a percent, as far as the Labour Party was concerned, uh, I... I was a credible candidate. I also then had to take on British citizenship uh, to be eligible for Westminster. And at that stage, I thought, well, no, nobody could pronounce Kshida, uh, but they could all at that time pronounce Gisela. Once I took on my married name, uh, everybody could pronounce Stuart, but they were struggling with the Gisela. So I'm, I'm, I'm used to all this. <laughs> but so, so all women shortlist, all that. And I decided that I, we were living in Worcester and I had two small children and I wasn't going to be the MP in the constituency where my children went to school. So Birmingham was perfect, or Birmingham in the West Midlands was perfect because it was half an hour on the motorway, but a different radio station, a different television station. You know. And I decided to go for Stourbridge. And now that's where I had connections, but Edgbaston came up before. Uh, and you, it, you're not going to believe this, Matt. 
you know, all the things you're meant to do to prepare to get selected. Well, uh, I didn't even know the boundaries of the constituency. I didn't know a single person in the room. I thought if I start talking about lampposts and potholes, they're going to ask me about lampposts and potholes, and I don't know where they are. <laughs> I butchered Tony Blair's Clause 4 speech to the special conference, uh, and I got selected a candidate. And the then press officer, Ian Austin, Ian Austin, another interesting person, you know, uh, who comes in the House of Lords as a non-affiliated, the same time as I do. So, you know, we both made our funny different journeys. But Ian Austin was the pref- press officer. And after I got selected, the first thing I said to him, do you, would you have a map of the constituency? <laughs> oh, wow. And, and then, uh, you know, with hindsight, Edgbaston and I, uh, we were sort of a match made in heaven uh, in, 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 in many ways. And then on election night, I was the first televised Labour gain of the night uh, and sort of shot to national attention. And again, it was very interesting. Uh, Alistair Campbell, remember him? Hang <laughs> up. Uh, about half an hour before the declaration, and he kind of, using a number of expletives, which I won't repeat here, just said, don't you start thanking the police. You have 15 seconds, which are going to be the 15 seconds of your acceptance speech we're going to be played all over and over again. Get those right, and after that, you can thank the police, your mother, and the Catholic So, you know, there I stood. Tonight, we saved the NHS. Tonight, we did all uh, yes, and as I say, the rest is history. I mean, that moment is so clear in my mind. The returning officer saying your name. I can see what you're wearing, the kind of cream um, jacket, your hair kind of slightly tinted red, or I don't know if that's just under the lights. It's that, you are the image of the night for so many people. Um, you know, the DVD that Labour Party staff got, I think in 2005, there's like a compilation of the three election victories. And in 1997, you're the first, as you say, televised Labour Game of the Night. So you always had a kind of special place in, in history. It must have been quite a cool... I mean, it's mad to think that, you know, you lose out in the European Parliament. Then, you, you know, you have to get citizenship. You stand for a seat. You don't really fully understand when you become selected. And then all of a sudden, on this historic night, one of the great elections in the history of the country, you're kind of the face of it. It must have felt surreal. I mean, the good thing is that if you're at the centre of the stage, you only realise these things with hindsight. You see, the, the most extraordinary thing, which I didn't realise until weeks after the election, is I went to some reception in Highbury Hall, which was the home of the Chamberlains. And as I walked up that staircase, I saw this picture of Neville Chamberlain, and at the bottom it said, MP for Birmingham Edgbaston. And I kind of, I, I was stunned by, own, by my own audacity, quite frankly. I w- if I had known that before, that would have been the one seat I would not have gone for. You know, a German, a woman, a socialist, one born near Munich, taking Neville Chamberlain's seat. And not you just know? Neville Chamberlain's seat, a seat they've been Tory for 99 years. I mean, people talk about the Red Wall in this election. You effectively put a hole in the blue wall for 20 years. Yeah, and, and, and Birmingham was, divi- uh, was historically quite divided in terms of the, the South. 
uh, was, was the, and of course there's the, 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 the People's Republic of Sutton Coldfield, which forever shall remain blue uh, and, and forever not be comfortable of being part of Birmingham. But the, the rest of Birmingham uh, tended to be the South kept swinging. You know, you had the Longbridge, you had the strong trade unions, uh, but then the Tories took uh, the, the South in, in, in the 80s. 92, Labour actually took three seats of the Tories in the South. And of course, for those people, Estelle Morris, uh, uh, Richard Burden and Lynn Jones, for them it was very hard in 92 because, you see, they came in and they thought they had won. But of course, the party nationally had lost. But Edgbaston kind of held out. Uh, and it's a... It's an interesting seat in the sense that it's got four parts. There's, there's Edgbaston, which is, uh, you know, if you do sort of real thumb, thumbnail sketches, it's, it's the university and it's seriously rich in a sense. And it's been one of the strengths of Birmingham that it's rich people live in the center. You know, it's not like Leeds and, Bir and, and Manchester where the big houses were broken up into bedsits. Uh, Edgbaston still has the big houses. Then you've got Bartley Green, which is sort of trapped between the reservoir and the motorway. Uh, used to be, you know, Longbridge workers, but it's, it's really tough there. Harborn, highest percentage of doctors per square mile, uh, university staff. And then there was Quinton, and Quinton voted Labour in the 60s, voted Tory in the 70s. They didn't like tuition fees because they didn't like their kids to run up debts. And there were a number of streets, and, and as a former organiser, you, you fully appreciate that map. There were a number of occasions when we were getting nervous. Do, are the people still with us? And I would go door knocking on a number of streets in Quinton. And as long as they still looked me in the eye, I was fine. They would give me a really hard time, but they wanted to be fair. So that means it was a constituency which had a bit of everything, which is nice. But And that made it all the more remarkable that you held it for so long. In 2005, your majority got cut. In 2010, it was perceived to be such a miracle that you won the Survivor of the Year Award at the Spectator Awards. I mean, were there any times that you ever thought you had lost it or did you always think you were going to win? Again, now I said the moment of truth, which only a fellow party organiser will, will fully appreciate. I, I was blessed that in 1998, uh, one of, a young woman called Caroline Badley started working for the regional office. Uh, but she also lived in the constituency and she ended up running my campaigns. And when it came to 2010, actually when it came to the summer of 2009, we looked at the figures and we just said, it's a goner. There's no way we're going to hold on to this one. And she and uh, two, two others who were sort of part of that really cool team, we met one evening and said, we've got a simple choice. We're either going to lose gracefully, we're going to make a lot of noise, street stores, balloons, you name it, you know, razzmatazz, and then we, we, we concede gracefully on the night. And, and, or we're going to throw the rule book out of the window. Just try what we think is the right thing. Uh, but do remember, that means we only take between Christmas and the year off. And the next nine months will be hell, but it'll be interesting. We decided the latter. When the election was called, I was only allowed out twice. <laughs> the rest of the time uh, I spent behind the phone. 
part of the reason why I was not allowed out was on one occasion I had cold sores and swollen face that they said, you look like Miss Piggy. There is no way we're going to let anybody see you. Uh, so phone calls were fine. Uh, but by the end of the election, I had made 1,196 phone calls, all of which were followed up by handwritten notes. Not a single one of the voter ID phone calls had the wrong information. These were all people who, who used to vote for us and now had doubts or hadn't voted for us, but now we're thinking about it. And Matt, you know what kind of organization that requires. Because we worked on the basis that I, I only do the things which only the candidate can do. And that is be the persuader and the firm up. And on the day, uh, you know, I can't remember how many thousands of calls we made, how many people we had, and the rest of Birmingham, they all came and helped us. But again, it requires the most extraordinary organization. It's hard work. And that's the bit people don't see. But we won. And, and just to finish this story off, because Caroline Badley, there was about three weeks before the election, I said to her, could I win this? And she said, no, no, don't worry, don't worry. You're safe. You're not going to win this. So on the night when the result came out, I said, but Caroline, you promised me I was going to lose this. <laughs> you know what? I've had that conversation with candidates when I've been the organiser. I remember someone ringing me up livid that they got elected it was in a council seat but i'd kind of promised them they would lose and they could just be a paper candidate do us a favor and they got elected having made no effort at all but what's and i hearing you talk about it is amazing because so many candidates and politicians don't do that stuff they go well look it's the weather i can't change it so when you said you threw the rule book out the window as well as just putting in that superhuman effort was there anything else you did differently do, did you do you mean that you campaigned in a different tone were you a bit punchier towards an opponent or anything like that yeah we did uh you know again you'll appreciate that uh arnie graf community organizing yeah we really did that you know the people go through the motions but, but we kind of did it so uh first of all we worked on a slogan and the slogan was uh i'm labor my values are labor but i think for myself uh we kind of never rubbish the brand labor, but we distance ourselves from labor. I mean, that's a big, it's a big mistake people make when they think, oh, the electorate likes a rebel. Well, no, the electorate likes someone who offers something on top of the core, but don't rubbish your own party. And yes. you know, you said in your book, you know, this, this thing that, that we allowed Ed Miliband to, to rubbish the achievements was just, I mean, it's just bad marketing apart from anything else. Uh, so, so we had a, an election leaflet which went, these are Labour's promises, and then they're Gisela's promises. And Gisela's promises would always be complementing uh, that. There were then two things. One was planned and the other one wasn't. And the one which wasn't, the Tories thought, was the cleverest thing I'd ever done in my life. Uh, because... You've got to remember, this was the period when, when Gordon Brown was starting to get very unpopular and this was Bigot Gate and these endless reshuffles. In my, you know, I, I couldn't keep track anymore who, who was minister for paperclips. Uh, you know, so, so we had this chart in, in my office uh, which had the cabinet there and clearly there, was, there must have been one evening of phoning 
uh, when when people got slightly fed up with uh, <laughs> with comments about Gordon coming back because someone drew the devil's horns on on the picture of Gordon on this picture, and one of the Guardian journalists came one day to do something and they spot the picture and the story becomes uh you know you would expect this to see in the office of a tory mp but not of a labor mp and the tories thought i was so clever having engineered this saying well i don't like gordon either uh, whereas we were horrified but what we did do is in about the last two weeks uh, on the phoning, and again, it sort of just showed how well we knew the people we were talking to, that it never became a story, is we would say to people, look, look at the figures. Uh, Gordon's not going to be the next prime minister. You're going to lose your Labour government. Do you really want to lose your Labour government and a Labour MP? So, so we kind of did always an additionality. Again, it's hard work. And do you think that works, that sort of message? Because I remember in 2017, people saying that, you know, Labour MPs were saying that about Corbyn, like, oh, don't worry, you know, he's not going to be Prime Minister, so you can vote for Labour without worrying about a Corbyn government. But, you know, you know me, I'm your local person, keep me in. Do you think the public actually responds to that sort of messaging? They would have responded to that in 2010, in terms of saying you're about to lose your Labour government. Uh, but I think it does. it's... Do you know, it's that bit of not understanding what politics is about. It's uh, in the 2010 election where we took no Labour material. It was the most personal of campaigns you can imagine. We were the best organised I can think of. We were blessed with a really nice and therefore ineffective opposition. Uh, and we reckon at the end that you could the window of a swing which you locally can make a difference is probably no bigger than 6%. I think beyond that, you come in with the tide and you go out with the tide. And this is where candidates get terribly delusional about their, their own impact. It's, it's at the end of the day, you are part of a national brand. Uh, and so if you can complement that brand, then that's okay but you can't deny the brand. And that's what I think the Corbyn message was. But 6%, if it's close, is a lot. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I think think that is probably your maximum. But most candidates, and particularly sitting MPs, who've held on for a long time, if you were to ask them, they were probably would tell you, oh, it's 10, 20%. You know, they, they, they get this wrong. It's a bit like, our own assessment of how well we drive. Uh. It's such a good observation. I mean, I love the story of of the victory on the back of all this exceptional work and, and all the decisions about effectively making all your own literature. So you wouldn't have carried any of the stuff that was designed centrally. You're having to design all your own leaflets from scratch. Tell you something, we even had our, our nighttime printing CD because we literally would be printing the front page of a leaflet whilst we were sitting in the other room, uh, writing the back page of thing. And we also, but, but we also had fun. So uh, for example, we would have a barbecue, but you, in, in our campaign, you were never allowed to do anything unless and until you had done some work. So when we had our Christmas dinner, 
uh, we had one of the village halls and there was someone in the kitchen, you know, roasting turkey, was, you know, we stuffed 10,000 envelopes, bundled them up, and once they were bundled up, then you could have your Christmas dinner. <laughs> we the, the leadership debates, we would all get together and uh, have, have a barbecue, but drink quite a bit. But you weren't allowed to do any of this until you had done several rounds of delivery. Uh, so that there was always that com combined with, because it's, and, and this is, I think, what, the, the, what, the, what the, the people around Corbyn never understood. You know, they've never fought marginal seats. They, they, they don't realize that you win elections by having the most magnificent uh, local Labour Party policy forum uh, or wrecking someone else's, you know, AGM. That's no votes. Get out there, knock on doors, get names, phone numbers, know their intent, know your voters and work for them. So the, the, the amount of calls you had, uh, uh, 1,100, 1,190, <laughs> whatever it was, the figure. So when did you start making those calls? And, and, and like how many calls is that a day over what sort of period? You know, it, you must have been on the phone for about a year. No, those were literally as, as soon as the election was called. Because, you know, there's this... So, so what happens is uh, you're the member of parliament and then an election gets called. And the first thing that happens when the election is called, that you cease to be an MP and you are the candidate. Mm. So you spend about a day or two just, you know, changing the phone messages, making sure no one uses the wrong stationery, uh, do the telephone reading so that when you do your election returns that, you know, everybody knows what's charged to what, you know. Uh, and from that moment onwards, you know, as I say, Caroline wouldn't let me out. I was just behind the phone. And there'd be some conversations which would be half an hour, an hour. Others would be fairly short. Uh, but, you know, you just, you just kind of worked it. But you also have to say that at that stage, uh, we would have had 13 years of relationship building, uh, casework, you know, I don't think casework wins you elections, but not doing casework loses you elections. Um, so it was a, yeah. Did it feel odd, effectively, although you, although you are communicating directly with the, with the public very personally, did it feel odd to fight an election campaign just on the phone? Did, 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 you, did any part of you think, well, actually, I should be a bit more visible. I should be out there. People can see me in town or stuff like that. Now it's now it's the time for the great confession. Uh, I'm actually not very good at that. <laughs> I'm very surprised. <laughs> I have I have such a low threshold for this. Uh, again, the the team <laughs> they, would, they, they would let me out. You know, getting everybody else going. Uh, there, there's there's a story about my advice surgeries. Uh, <laughs> One of, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to name him because he, he, he would be only up. So he's a local Birmingham councillor, John Cotton, uh, who ended up working for me. And when he left, uh, we sort of had a, a meal and John got up and he said, when I started working for Gisela and go to advice surgeries, I thought my job was to protect Gisela from the constituents. He said, it didn't take me long to realise <laughs> my job was to protect the constituents from Gisela. <laughs> Why, when you say you've got a low threshold, is it a low threshold for what people who are wasting your time or people moaning? What, what is the what is the low threshold actually for? 
No, I think the low threshold is one of curiosity. Uh, you know, if, if, you, if you come to me with, with, with a problem uh, I'm, I haven't come across or something I hadn't been aware of, um, I, I will listen to you for two hours and go and say, run this past me again, why? And, and I try to work it out. It's sort of when, uh, when, when some things which you, you know, you, you know you can't do anything about it, uh, even if you want it. Uh, or you, you know what the problem is and you, 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 you tell them that is the solution, but they just won't accept it. Uh, that was the bit. And, and it was that which in the end made me decide to step down. In, 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 in 2015, I decided that was the last uh, election I was going to fight. Because I feel that if you are an MP, then the constituents have the right to be able to talk to someone who hasn't got that low threshold anymore. That's, I think that's the moment for an MP to know it, they ought to move on and give it over to someone new. I don't think I've ever heard a politician say that about themselves before. It's a remarkable um, insight into um, your relationship with the public. I'm sure lots of MPs feel like that. I don't think any have been honest enough to ever admit it. Well, it's... And it may fit in with sort of my, my view of life, that the purpose of life is to live it. Uh, and, and therefore, you, and, and, and when I stepped down, you know, <laughs> I have to tell you, the last thing I thought is, and this is why I said to you earlier, I'm feeling a bit like Forrest Gump. Uh, if you had said to me in, 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 in 2017, uh, when I left Parliament, uh, and I still remember, I've got a photograph of me, walking down the corridor for the last time, leaving my office, that I would be back three years later. It's the Baroness Stuart of Edgbaston. I would have said, yeah, really, yeah. <laughs> and the Villa's going to win the cup, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're in the Premier League, so there's that. And, they, and then they scored seven goals the other day. <laughs> yeah, beat Liverpool, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you didn't feel, I mean, obviously people say all political careers end in failure, but actually yours didn't. You, you chose to get out based on how you felt about it. So... Was there any sadness at all? Was there any melancholic feeling? Did you miss the Chamber of the House of Commons or running a constituency office or anything like that? You see, yes and no. I mean, I, 2015, I knew that was it. I thought it'd be 2020. Then, of course, came the referendum, which I had intended to play no part in it. Again, I, that was a really good plan, uh, <laughs> really, in this one. Um, so by the time the 2017 came, my, my mind was already on the way out. And, you know, and again, as a former organiser, you will appreciate that. I, I knew that I had sort of detoxed sufficiently uh, when about, I think it was about two months after I had left, uh, I went out for a walk and I picked up some rubbish and put it in the bin. And I thought, and I didn't have the urge to get the camera out, take a picture for the next leaflet, or, you know, the <laughs> Woodgate Valley cleanup. <laughs> You'll know you're fully detoxed when you didn't put the litter there in the first place and then get your camera out and pick it up. <laughs> no, Matt, come on. <laughs> I'm sure that didn't happen on any of the by-elections I worked on. But, um... No, 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 and let's not mention mineral water either, shall we? <laughs> no, God, no. Oh... <laughs> Oh, that's a podcast all in itself, that, that awful episode. But um, one of the really interesting things you did while an MP 
was to be one of the UK representatives on the European Convention, which effectively drew up the new constitution for the EU. At that stage, would you have described yourself as pro-EU? Yeah. Well, you know, this, this, I, I don't off, you know, it's, it's a word which I think you rarely use, but there is a, is a moment of epiphany, which was mine, not in terms of the EU itself. You know, I've never wished the EU anything. I wish the EU well. I, I wanted to succeed. But in order to succeed, it needed to change. And I've always believed that institutions, particularly political institutions, are quite pragmatic and able to change. Uh, what I hadn't realized, that there's a kind of core in the EU that is so convinced of its rightness and therefore incapable of changing. And that's why, you know, when the referendum came, I originally didn't want to, to, to do anything, but then I realized that by not saying that I've now reached a point that having been asked, I would say, let's leave. I would actually endorse the status quo of something that I thought was deeply flawed. So it's a kind of tricky, tricky message. So, and it's going to be even trickier for me because I now spend a lot of time trying to get a position that we don't break up the United Kingdom Union, which I think is a, is, is a really important one, uh, also for England, particularly for England. Uh, so people go and say, well, it comes a bit rich for, from you, you know, having, having just led us out of one union, they're trying to def defend the other. Uh, but there's a, the unions can be a good thing, but it requires certain structures and, and certain behaviour. So on the convention then, which was chaired by the former French president, uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, I mean, what, what was it like working with him? Oh, it was an experience in itself. Uh, it, it, it taught me a number of things. A, it taught me the, the existence of artificial intelligence uh, because my laptop, every time I, I put in Giscard d'Estaing, would uh, autospell would correct it to discard, uh, which in hindsight I thought was uh, brilliant. It was an omen. What, but what he, so, so we were charged to come up with this new model and Giscard d'Estaing comes in and has, and, and states quite clearly that he thinks three things need to happen. He, he said that the, the commission can't, shouldn't be more than, than, than 12 members because uh, any committee with more than 12 doesn't function. The EU needs its own resources, i.e. a taxation stream for its fund, which is automatic. And it needs a different way of ratifying treaties to which the, came up the, the Convention of the People where, you know, next treaty rather than each country ratifying it, we trundle off to Strasbourg. And I still think he was absolutely right. He was spot on that if you wanted to have a, 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 more, a proper federal structure, which is what I think they will have to end up with, that's what you need. His problem was that the closer he got to the, to, to the end date, you know, he became an old man in a hurry who wanted to have on his gravestone, here lies Valérie Giscard d'Estaing who gave Europe its first constitution. And he ended up compromising on all the things he actually knew in his heart were right. And we ended up with a document which I just thought, no, I, I can't endorse it. And what was so interesting is that at that time, uh, everybody expected the Brits to be the difficult ones. 
as it turned out, it was a referendum in France and in the Netherlands, which defeated the, 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 the constitution. Uh, and all the other countries gave up any thoughts of giving people a referendum on it. How significant a role do you think that the euro played in, in, in crystallizing for you Britain's role within the EU, that, that once some countries in the EU had signed up to a currency and other countries hadn't, that actually at that point, was that the sort of point at which Britain's fate in the EU was sealed? It was a moment of no return. Uh, and uh, because as long as you just talk about it, it's, it's, it's an aspirations and people would talk about two-speed Europe, you know, without talking that even two-speed Europe requires the same destination, you just arrived differently, but we could, we could fudge it. Once you had the Euro, but you see, even then, when Cameron started the negotiations, uh, I kind of was, was quite clear that if he'd come back with a deal which said you have a, two kinds of membership of Europe, you've got Eurozone, which has to have its own fiscal uh, governance. It, it has to have its own tax raising powers. It has to be able to, to borrow. Uh, and they're non-Euro members, not just non-Euro members by exemption, because remember, the only two who had the opt-out, it's us and, and Denmark, and the, the Swedes were sort of a semi-opt-out, uh, but not a legal one. All the others were legally obliged to join. Uh, at that stage, if Cameron had come back with that, and, you know, Poland hasn't joined, and it would be quite, quite tricky to get that, you know, Bulgaria, Romania, all that, I would have said, you know what, it's worth giving it a try but not on, 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 on the terms which they came out with. At that moment, I thought, no, no. And, but you see, that thing which I found so extraordinary is how the, the, the Tory party is, is actually facing a real problem in terms of ideological ideas. Because Cameron uh, and Osborne totally modeled themselves on Blair. I mean, they actually sort of called him the master. You know, and you go into the office and there was the book. Uh, you know, the, a journey, uh, which was almost their, their book, their, 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 their roadmap. And when it came to the EU referendum, uh, Cameron thought that all he had to do was copy Harold Wilson. Uh, Wilson sort of said, I have renegotiated even when it amounted to, to not to a row of beans. Uh, he did, um, you know, cabinet uh, responsibility, you know, collective responsibility was lifted for the duration of the referendum. Um, they sent a leaflet to every household, albeit just one. I mean, Wilson, and so, someone actually sent me the leaflets which were sent out in the 70s. They were of equal size and in, in terms of equal merit in the case they made. And one was for and one was against. And then said, up to you. But, but Cameron thought he could, he could do a Wilson and, and he couldn't do a Blair and he couldn't do a Wilson. So he walked away and whistled. <laughs> Just on the convention, <clears throat> is this true that you effectively came up with Article 50? Yes, that is, that is true. Because <laughs> you see, I, it, in, in a, as all matters European, it's in a roundabout way. Uh, when I went into the convention, I, I sent a note uh, to, to number 10 and said, because you see, I wasn't the government's representative, I was parliament's representative, which actually gave me the power to do things which the government didn't approve of. Uh, but I said, look, what, whatever this convention produces, I think there are three things 
which we have to produce uh, in order for it to be acceptable to, to, to the House of Commons. And uh, one of them was that you had a mechanism for powers to go to Brussels and then return to the nation states. And it didn't matter what, what the thing was. I mean, it could be fishing hooks, you know, I, I don't care. But it, it, you had to have a constitutional mechanism for two-way flow. It had to, it had to have a uh, clause which allows a country to leave the European Union. Because if, if that doesn't happen, this, this, this notion that this is just a, a, a ratcheting up all the time and you can never escape. And the third one was that we have to re re remove the clause uh, of ever closer union. And I thought if you, and, and my view was that if you ended up with a document that had those three things, then other than the, the really of most Eurosceptics, probably would have said you've got a, a mechanism which allows for movement. So the, 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 the government, you know, Tony Blair's government wasn't interested in, 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 in any of those things really, and they certainly weren't uh, hung up about a, a, a clause to leave. Uh, but in the final session, when we sort of, the, the, the 13 members of the presidium got together, uh, I, I sort of kept insisting on, on, on this. I think, no, we really need this. And uh, Giuliano Amato, the former uh, Italian prime minister, an exceptionally gifted lawyer, uh, sort of said, well, look, actually, uh, Gisela's right, because the Vienna Convention is uh, legally ambiguous. If we're trying to draw a constitution, I think we should have one like that. So then they thought of turning it against us. They, they sort of said, fine. Uh, and the original constitution had an expulsion clause, which said, if a country doesn't ratify this constitution within two years, they will be asked to leave. And everybody thought it'll be the Brits who'd be asked to leave. Uh, and then of course, it was the French who rejected it, it was the Dutch who rejected it. Constitution was thrown into the sausage machine and became the Lisbon Treaty. And because they can never remove anything once it's been put in, uh, the expulsion clause became clause 50. Wow, so you played your part. <laughs> yeah. Just on ever closer union, because that was one of the things that David Cameron did negotiate in his renegotiation was um, a commitment that Britain didn't have to go along with that. I mean, I always thought that was slightly more significant than people gave it credit for. That felt like quite a big thing that he got. Yeah, now tell me what it means. <laughs> well, that's a different question. But given that that phrase was a kind of defining phrase, I guess, of the project, I thought it was a, a, a sort of symbolic. I thought it was more symbolic than people thought it was. Yeah, it, it, it was symbolic. Uh, and the, 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 the real problem for the European Union were, were the two phrases. It wasn't only the, the closer union, but it was this belief that it could deepen and widen at the same time. Mm. Uh, so they, they they never realized that as they were widening, they actually were becoming more shallow. So the, the ever closer union in itself was already problematic. Uh, but you see that if you have a European, if you've got a European Court of Justice that has as part of its political mandate, that if in doubt, ever closer union is part of your decision-making process, uh, then that brings problems. But you see Cameron's removal of that phrase would have only been in, in relation to things in the future. Now, 
which bits of things in the future did the EU not already have a say over, other than, say, deployment of troops? So it's, you're right, it's symbolic, but if that's all he came back with, then... Did you ever think, even at that point, so you're kind of going on a journey at this point, incrementally, not turning against the EU, but re- reappraising your own views on whether Britain should stay in, whether the UK should stay in. Would you have ever thought at that stage, that in a few years' time, you'd be on a, you know, a campaign bus with Michael Gove and Boris Johnson campaigning to leave? No. <laughs> so, so, referendum gets called. And again, I go and... Uh say, uh, I mean, hey, just yet another, you know, I, 2015 was my last election. I wasn't going to do any of this stuff anymore. You know, I had 20 years of this. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, there's, there's Nigel Farage's campaign. Uh, and it was then David Owen, uh, who was a very old friend uh, of my husband's. And David says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to campaign for coming out. And I was going, David, remember, you left the Labour Party in the 80s because you were anti-European. He said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, and that made me think, okay. And then I said, no, 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 I'm not going to do anything. And David just said, look, I'm really sorry, but you can't do that. If you were just Mrs. Stewart or Worcestershire, uh, you would be perfectly entitled to withdraw into your private sphere and do nothing. Uh, as it happens... You're an elected member of British Parliament, and the country is about to be asked a generational question. And to have no view on that, I don't think is acceptable. And I thought, yeah, you're right. And then it was only vote leave uh, because I, you know, I, I occasionally sort of get these, you know, these highly informed uh, Twitter attacks on uh, this is what I get for campaigning with Nigel Farage. Uh, to, to me, uh, I never went anywhere near them other than once being caught in, in, in Sutton Coldfield, but I, I had to because I thought the people of Birmingham, I wasn't let leave this to, 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 to Nigel Farage. I had a right to say something then. Uh, vote leave was the thing which worked with, but if the Electoral Commission had decided to award the official campaign status to leave EU and then would have been run by Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks, at that moment, I, I, def, I would have felt justified to just fall silent. I, I, I would have just said no. Not, not running with that one. But for a lot of Labour people, Boris Johnson isn't as toxic as Nigel Farage, but he's kind of, he's, he's on that kind of end of the spectrum to them, right or wrong. I mean, did it feel a bit weird? Did you feel like, you know, even if you wanted to talk publicly about leaving the EU for the for the very noble reasons that you, and pragmatic reasons that you outlined, did it, it must have felt a bit strange. You know, he is, he's not John Major, you know, he's Boris Johnson. It, d- d- again, as an organiser, you will understand that. Uh, during campaigns, and this was at the time when I was also still had to do, Parliament was still in session. Uh, uh, I was on the Intelligence Security Committee. We were running that. I essentially didn't have time to feel weird. Uh, <laughs> But there, there were, I, I tell you, my, the, the one moment during the campaign, which, I, I, well, it was so weird that I, at some stage, thought that I'd imagine this. And it's just was one of my wacky, uh, you know, sort of funny nightmares. Uh, but uh, the guy from Sky TV tells me it did happen, and he's actually got the footage to prove it. And this was the 
the first time we went out with the bus and uh, we went down to Cornwall. And you know, eating, eating when the camera around you is not a good idea. Uh, and particularly this sort of, you know, there had already been these, these, these accusations that I was only there to babysit Boris. Uh, so we come out of the bus and they walk up to this ice cream stand and they give us two cones of Cornish ice cream. You know the stuff which starts dripping very quickly? Yeah. Cameras all around. I thought, what do I do? What do I do? So I grabbed this fistful of tissues. I very quickly ate my ice cream because you can't go anywhere either. You have to eat it. Whilst Boris was sort of there licking his ice cream, which was starting to run down, goes into the crowd, me holding on to my bunch of tissues. And this woman comes out of the crowd and goes and says, Dr. Johnson, can I have your ice cream, please? He hands over the ice cream. She starts eating his ice cream. I put my tissues away. No problem. <laughs> wow. And, and it was that bit which struck me as quite extraordinary. Uh, and this, this sort of the, the, the Boris Johnson who actually hides in full public view. There's a, there's a, there's a much more sort of thoughtful Boris, which is, and, and a quite hardworking. I mean, when we prepared for the television debates, uh, the, the, what people don't realize is that the preparation is one where you have to, to bond as a group of people that you can almost finish each other's sentence. So it's not a kind of prepping of lines to take. It's a prepping of saying things and responding. And I think particularly the first debate, if you look at it, we were sort of one team and the other three were just sort of, there were three individuals. And, and, yes. and, and Boris, you know, turned up for these sessions, stayed there for the sessions, worked, worked his way through. So, uh, it, it was interesting, but, but what was so interesting for me is that I'd known Michael Gove for much longer because I'd worked with him. Uh, I was editing a political magazine and he was one of my associate editors. But to this day, I would not say that I know Michael. You know, I, I know Michael, but I don't know him. Uh, whereas uh, Boris is actually much easier to read. I can imagine. I, ima I imagine he's... Good company as well. I mean, it must have, it must be quite. If, if you're going to be on a battle bus with someone going through a kind of difficult national election or referendum, he must be quite a good person to be on the road with. Yeah, I mean, and and it's it's also the the response. But I, I tell you one uh, other fun thing. So people will come into the bus and take photographs of us, uh, sort of sitting in the back of it. Yeah, I remember those pictures. And there's, uh, there's my, my if, should I ever write an autobiography, uh, there's a moment when I came across what, what would be my, my, my title for it. Because the, the picture was of Douglas Carswell, Boris Johnson and me. And I can't remember what Douglas did. Did he, did he defect or did he leave or what did he do? He did, did something. Yeah, yeah, he became UKIP's first elected MP, didn't he? He defected and caused a by-election, I think. So his local paper had this photograph of Douglas Carswell, and us at the back of the bus, but the caption read, Douglas Carswell and Boris Johnson and someone else. <laughs> well, it's true. And, and I thought, if I ever write that book, it's got to be hashtag and someone else. <laughs> oh, it's a great title for a book. <laughs> but, I mean, it's amazing that they didn't know who you were. 
Well, uh, to, 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 to their credit, I sort of jokingly sent a note to the, to the local paper and said to the guy, look, uh, if, you're, if you're ever in London, come around, we'll have a drink. Uh, <laughs> and in fairness, I sent email saying, it, it, it was a work experience picture editor who has been sacked forthwith. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, obviously, you know, Dominic Cummings is now uh, even more prominent than he was then. What was he like to work with? Because the Brexit, the uncivil war, Pateson was a kind of genius, you know, this sort of marketing genius who has an instinct for the public and how to, how to campaign and the words and phrases and the issues to pick. Um, did you deal with him much? How did you find him? I liked them. <laughs> you know, but uh, if, if you really, I mean, it's, it's, I remember coming in, because I only joined Vote Leave uh, at a time after which they had a lot of their infighting. You know, the reason why I ended up taking over as chair was uh, it, it was sort of the, the peace settlement after a lot of, 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 of bloodletting uh, and tensions building up between various people. So I missed all that. And by the, I remember going in there and uh, saying to Dom, uh, vote leave, take control. And Dom turned around and said, no, 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 take back control. And uh, in, in the film, I think Benedict Cumberbatch uh, got Dom down to such a, a perfect. Now, you know, the, 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 the others were less good, but he wasn't about the others. I think in, in, in terms of just Dom, uh, it, it got him right. And where there is much light, there is much shadow. You know, this is, this is the nature of things. Uh, the, the one thing which always endeared me, Don to me was the fact that there are two things he really loathes. And one of them is laziness and the other one is stupidity. Uh, and, and he contests his own theories. So, so he, he is, and it's something which I always have done. And actually it is something which Boris also does is you, you suddenly stop and you kind of go, am I still right to do this? Or what? Just, just remind me, why are we doing this? You, you, you keep pausing and, 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 and reflecting and then occasionally then being prepared to say, well, look, let's stop doing that. And some things work and others don't. You know, just the nature of things. He seems a kind of bogeyman, isn't he? He's kind of cultivated a deliberately eccentric character, the way, you know, the clothes he wears when he walks up Downing Street and stuff. I mean, is that, is that all a bit of a show or is, that, is there a grain of truth to that? Is that what he's really like? I mean, Jenny doesn't care. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and also I think there was at one stage, I'm not so, so sure now, but I think in the early days, I, I think there probably was a sense of that he's the lightning conductor. Uh, and that, that's an important role as well. And how did Labour friends of yours then? So when you, you end up chairing vote leave, did former parliamentary colleagues, former members of staff say, Kiesler, what are you doing? You, you're not a boss with Boris Johnson. You were a Labour MP a few years ago. Yes, uh, I think I tested, I, I stretched the loyalty to, 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 to quite some, some limits, but I've never picked fights and people, uh, you know, so, so, some people sort of came, came with me or were quietly agreeing with me. Others were just saying, look, look, I, I, I turn on the television and I sit with Boris and I just, I just can't bear it. I really can't bear the sight of it. Uh, and you just have to say, you know what politics likes, it's, uh, 
you just do what what is required at, at, at that moment uh so but i've 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 stayed on on friendly terms one of the the, the really nice things when the peerage was announced uh keir starmer did send me a text congratulating me and i thought it just showed what a pro he is and i, I really did appreciate that so i i mean i hope that uh you didn't you know friendships weren't ruined by the referendum or anything like that the people close to you who don't share your views on the eu we're okay with it in the end and you haven't, you know, burned there were a few, ties. Well, there were a few, uh, which were, yeah, it was quite, quite hurtful. Uh, but the, the one thing, if anybody out there wants to do a thesis, uh, I kept only six weeks worth of abusive emails, only emails and only six weeks worth. And it is uh, eight arch lever files. <sighs> And why only six weeks worth? Uh, because after that, I thought uh, this is as much power as I'm prepared to give people who just hurl abuse at me. Mm. You know, I'd, I'd go into, there was one occasion I was standing in Worcester railway station and literally a couple of guys had to come to my rescue because this, this, this youngster sort of was just, you know, you know, frothing at me. And, and, and for a lot, even, even to this day, I have to tell you, is that when I go somewhere and someone just comes towards me, I, I really pause because I, I just don't know what happens. I mean, I had it two weeks ago at uh, an, an evening event and someone who had known for a long time sort of just comes up and I hadn't talked to him for some ages and just suddenly goes and says, you're an absolute disgrace and what have you. And, and at that moment, you've just got to say, you know, next day he said, look, I'm terribly sorry. I probably drunk too much. Uh, yeah, you probably have, but you know, it's, it, Brexit is the only thing where people, even now, four years later, feel that they can't start a conversation uh, without declaring which side they were on. I mean, it used to be the Iraq war. You know, they used to go and say, well, of course, I was against it. You know, suddenly no one was for it anymore. Uh, and on this one, uh, and it, I think it just shows you that we are at the moment going through what in less peaceful time would have been a, a version of a kind of civil war. We, we're, we're kind of, the, the nation is looking at itself in a, in a different way. And that's where all the Scottish referendum stuff also comes in. It's, it's a redefinition of who we are. And I think the machinery of state has shown itself not to be as good as we thought it was. But what an appalling thing for you to go through that just for standing up for what you believe in, which actually in itself, wanting to leave the EU is not an extreme position. You know, I can see why people got annoyed with vote leave. I can see why people got annoyed with a stronger in campaign. You know, no campaign is perfect. But that people would feel that they can come up to you. I mean, even not just that, email or tweet abuse, but to do it face to face in, in that way. And for that to still, you know, I mean, of course you would feel that, that if you're not that long ago that this was happening. I just think it's appalling. Yeah, but you know, just is, and and uh, and and even to this day, people come up and say, "You better explain yourself." So it, it's a bit like if after '92 we in the Labour Party would go up to every Conservative and go and say, "Well, you guys, you better explain yourself why you won." And then I say, "Well, look, you know, people people asked, they made a decision." Uh, but but I think what's at, at heart there is that you have for the I can see why for a certain generation, uh, 
the, the EU was part of, you know, being part of Europe, it became of being outward looking, it, it made you liberal, it made you elegant and all kinds of things. Now, all sophisticated th almost. Yeah, sophisticated. Uh, but you also suddenly had that that very group had for the first time, as they saw it, taken something away from them, from a group of people who they not only did not respect, but actually probably quite despised. Uh, and that's the bit they, they just couldn't come to terms with. So I still get the thing of uh, students coming and saying, you have just taken away my right to, to, to work, live and love in, in, in the whole of Europe. And you feel like, and, and I said to, to, to one group, I said, look, I hate to tell you this, but people traveled, worked and loved across Europe even before 1973. But what I've given back to you is the ability to decide who makes your laws. And more to the point, you can, re you can remove those who make your laws. Uh, and they still sort of think, oh, this is just fudging. So it's, a, it's, it's still a strange thing. I, th I think it will be a generation uh, which it will take to, to recalibrate how we see ourselves and with that, how we project ourselves. I guess I just worry about the personal cost, the personal price you've paid if people have just been so abusive to you. And I, I think as someone who's on the kind of Remain side and all the rest of it, I think the Remain side has been quite poor at acknowledging some of its own shortcomings and, and certainly a kind of lack of sympathy for Leave voters. And, and in some quarters, a lack of sympathy for people like yourself. You know, I... Thinking about it, I think I probably do know people that would say, well, you shouldn't have campaigned with Boris Johnson, you know, and would, would kind of almost defend that person's right. And, and that really worries me because I think part of the narrative has been that vote leave and leave EU were kind of the baddies for want of better language and that the remain size sort of, you know, is all kind of rosy. But, you know, your personal experience shows that not to be the case. Mm. But, you know... Politics, you know, you, you, you know that everything in life comes at a price. And with, with all those things, probably if we'd known, you know, if I'd known what the 2010 election was, was going to take, would I have said, yes, let's do it that way? Would I have done the Convention on the Future of Europe if I'd known it was 18 months of my life? Uh, but, but, you know, life comes and you, you, you take it and... I think you actually learn a hell of a lot. Uh, and the, 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 the bit which I, I really learned during that is that you've got some people who've got the gift of friendship and, and the gift of genuinely seeing the other side, even when they utterly and totally disagree with that. And I think you just have to hang on to those people and be, be really careful not to give the negative side uh, because you give them power. The minute you let it get to you, you've given them power. But, and, and you must find this as a, as a public figure as well, you mustn't become the kind of person that doesn't care anymore either. Because mm. if that stuff just bounces off you, then you've become the kind of human being you wouldn't want to be. So you have to maintain the ability to be hurt, but try and protect yourself. And at the last election, it wasn't that long ago now, it feels like it was a lifetime ago with, the, with COVID and everything, but how hard was it for you to, I mean, and obviously there were others like John Woodcock and, and Ian Austin, but to come out and tell people 
not to vote Labour at a general election. I mean, that that, that must have felt surreal. Well, I, I think, you know, I always been been holding back on criticising the, the, the Labour Party whenever I could. So whilst I just thought electing Corbyn was, was just so disastrous, uh, you know, because, because I, I knew I wasn't going to go into an election, <laughs> having to ask people to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, it was, was, was slightly uh, easier for me. So, so I've never attacked him in, in, in that sense. But the, the, the moment for me came of when, when I suddenly started seeing that you had John Major and Tony Blair essentially saying to the electorate, don't vote in a government that has a mandate. And I got to the point where I thought, we, we've had a referendum. Uh, it's cost us a prime minister. Uh, we need a governing majority. We need a government that can now implement Brexit as a majority. Uh, and for that, I said to, to, to them, look, you know, and then this is why I was very careful that in the speech, I said, you know, voting for Boris Johnson does not make you a Tory. It, it does mean you, you, you're taking this over the line. But I knew it, that was the moment I, that I knew I had crossed the Rubicon. Uh, and, you know, that's just what you do. And, I mean, I don't know what, what your view is now, uh, but I now, I feel I've done the party politics. I am homeless. You know, there isn't a party I'm, I'm at home in. But I have no desire to find a new home. I've, I've done that, got the T-shirt, something else. I feel exactly the same way. I feel like, and we, you know, similar experiences, it, it, different things, but I feel like I got everything I needed out of party membership. And I wouldn't want to go, if I was to go back in, I'd want to go back in and do it all, you know, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't want to just be a sort of part-time member. I, the sort of person, if I get involved, I'm really getting involved and I get the sense that you're the same. And actually, there's something really liberating about not having to defend imperfect parties when they make silly decisions. You can go, I used to be a member, but it's not my business anymore. <laughs> I think they're idiots as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always remember asking, saying to an, an MP who came in uh, in a by-election, and I think he was the first vote he did. He he just walked through the division lobby with Labour, and I just stopped him and I said, "Do you know what you've just voted for?" And he said, "No." I said, "Look, you must never ever vote on anything unless you absolutely know what it is, you fully agree with it, and you stand by it." And I could just see this guy sort of going slightly pale. And I said, no, no, don't worry. Just get the whip <laughs> lines out. <laughs> and was that your first conversation with Liam Byrne? <laughs> Is that a, was that a good lucky guess? No, actually it wasn't. It Damn wasn't. It. It, wasn't it wasn't that far off, no. But, uh, I was thinking of West Midlands by-election <laughs> wins in your, in your time. But, uh, but talking of Liam, I think it's very exciting that he's, he's standing for mayor in the West Midlands. And uh, uh, I mean, there, there's almost something that, that could, me, could get me out again and sort of say I'll do something, but I think I can resist it. <laughs> oh, but maybe. So if it's close, perhaps. No, no. It's, uh, you see, I can't vote now anymore. Or can I vote in local elections? Actually, I need to find out. I oh, can't that's a good point, yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and how have you found the Lord, Lord so far? Obviously, it's still relatively early days, and a lot of it's been, um, you know, it's hard to get in there with COVID and everything. But 
How does it compare to being in the Commons? Well, it does operate differently. I mean, the, the, the atmosphere is, is, the dynamics is different. Uh, and I just spent, uh, I was introduced on the 17th. Uh, and then I spent uh, four weeks just literally just going in and sitting and listening. The, the way ministers respond, because the, in, in the Lords, they have several portfolios, uh, questions, uh, just the whole, it, it is a different pace. And I think you make a big mistake. And, and I did my maiden speech on Tuesday, uh, which, which, which was nice. Uh, uh, but, you know, Parliament, which as its essence, people talk to each other. And it's the exchange of ideas which allows for political ideas to be improved, evolved, that kind of thing. And you don't have any of those exchanges. So it is a bit deadening. It, it, it is quite strange. And do you ever reflect that? A really remarkable achievement anyway, for anyone. But to be German and now sit in the British House of Lords, you know, there's, there's a really powerful, inspirational story there. You know, does it? Do you, does that occur to you? It does actually, and 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 I tell you when it occurs to me. It's it's when you know this country goes on about sort of beating itself up uh, about social mobility and inclusiveness and all these kind of things. And I go and say, I arrived literally in January nineteen seventy four during the three day week. Uh, I had a suitcase. That was it. I didn't know anybody, so it wasn't kind of connections or anything. And I made that journey because of the openness of the system. It is actually by far more welcoming to outsiders than, than, than we are aware of. Now, you know, you've got to be lucky in it with the right time and the right place, but yeah, you have to do all those things. Uh, but I, it's, it's the weirdness when you have, to, so, so you, you get the phone call to say, you know, the list is going to be published tomorrow. And it sort of says there. And then the first thing you get is a letter from Garter at the College of Arms. And you have to go in and choose a name. Uh, and so I'm now the Right Honourable, because I'm a Privy Councillor, the Honourable, uh, the Right Honourable Baroness Stuart of Edgbaston. And I said, to, I said to the guy in the introductions, and I said, so my letter says that I now have to this is officially signed documents like that. So I said, so if I, if I were to apply for a mortgage, I mean, not that I will at my stage of life, but if I were to, how, you know, how do I sign it? And he sort of looked at me quite taken aback and was saying, Stuart of Edgbaston, that is your name now. And that, I have to say, does feel strange. But whenever you have these things, this is where you need your family. It's when your five-year-old grandson looks at you and goes and says, being Baronessy. Huh? <laughs> and then you go and say, yeah. <laughs> go and do the washing up. <laughs> Brings you back down to earth. Um, well, I was going to say geese seller, but obviously it's um, Stuart of Edgbaston. What a pleasure <laughs> this has been. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Matt. And good luck with the book. Keep selling it. Hope people give, give, give each other your book at Christmas. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, there you go. Gisela Stewart, or Stuart of Edgebaston, as she's now um, grandly known. But what a treat. And particularly, I think, and it's good for people like me who are, you know, Remainers, um, to hear that stuff. Um, and not just 
the intellectual other side. But the abuse he's had is is horrendous. You know, to to feel that anyone in this country can't walk down the street, and if they see someone without fearing someone who's walking towards them, that is completely wrong. And 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 it was uh, by no means the the biggest thing to take away from the interview, obviously. But it's just awful that we can't just disagree with each other and see it just as that without having to go up to people in the street and harass them. But oh man, what a treat! What a treat of an interview that was. You know, I really respect people in politics who know their own mind so clearly and can really get that across. Because actually, it does seem sometimes like that's in short supply. So, and there's always... I always think this as well as you think, oh, God, you know, and I know that politics doesn't work like this, but on the surface of it, you go, a a Labour MP on a battle bus with Boris Johnson, when actually, if you know how politics works and and how issues work, of course, actually, it's it's not that ludicrous. It's just the tribalism of politics makes that seem a big deal. But still, it's kind of a big deal. I just love the the practical, pragmatic approach of that and and the, the way that actually... You can demystify that stuff quite easily, as as Giesler does. So um, I would just love to get her back on. There's so much more. There's so much more I want to talk to her about. I feel like she should be sort of on every month just to give us a kind of cool-headed assessment of things, whether you agree with it or not. You know, it's just so refreshing to hear someone talk from kind of a... It strikes me as a kind of really pragmatic approach to the world. But maybe that's just because I agreed with a lot of what she said and she's from my wing of... Our former wing of our former party. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. What a way to start the weekend. Um, And an even better way, if you haven't done it already, would be to buy the book Politically Homeless by an up-and-coming author called Matt Ford. And thank you all for your lovely messages about Spitting Image as well, by the way, which is an absolute treat, as you would imagine, to work on. Um, I shall leave you now. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.